Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Friday, February 10th, 2023. It's certainly been an interesting week. Uh, joining me today, my co-hosts are the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings, Bill Bray, and Senior Editor Brian O'Rourke. We're going to highlight and quickly cover a few articles in the February issue of Proceedings. Uh, Bill, Brian, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. All right, so uh, let's start off with just a little. We got we got to mention. I think we have to mention Balloon Gate, the Chinese spy balloon, and uh, you know that certainly captured everybody's attention, including at the uh, State of the Union address. Uh, it, it seems like uh, this has been happening for a number of years. The Chinese, um, you know, spy balloon effort is a is a pretty massive effort. It's not just like a one off, and. Um, it also appears that there were there was a, a, a pretty incredible amount of ISR intelligence surveillance reconnaissance capability uh, dangling, you know, the, the um, electronic uh, equipment dangling underneath this balloon. So, uh, Brian, I wanted to throw this to you because we we've got something in the February issue that is not a balloon, but it's a related sort of capacity or capability. Yeah, the um, I guess the PLA is reading proceedings because this is not our first foray into this area. Uh, this month we had a Marine Captain Stone Holden who's uh, working for South Southcom right now uh, and focused on uh, cutting edge technologies. I guess is how he describes it, and he's talking about high altitude pseudo satellites, essentially high altitude, high endurance UAVs. Uh, these would provide long distance communication relays, ISR, that kind of thing that would um, replace or supplement satellites in the event of Chinese attacks on satellites, whether cyber attacks or kinetic attacks or that sort of thing. Uh, it's not the first time we've done it, though. Uh, commander Colin Fox, when he was a lieutenant commander in 2018, wrote, if it floats, it fights, which was a play on the idea of distributed lethality. But in this case, the floating was more literal because it was balloons. And he basically was advocating for what China's been doing. Yeah. So it, it's something we've covered a lot over the years. And if I were either of those guys, I'd be going to my chain of command this week saying, see, see, look what we can do. Uh, it can be done. It can be yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bill, let me throw the mic to you for a second. Um, just uh, let's talk about Asked and Answered, the, the February column. Yeah, sure. Um, so we've been running this column for our listeners since September of 2019. So we're in our fourth year of it. Uh, we weren't sure when we started it, you know, how it would be received. But in it, it, it was sort of started a little slow and then it's grown. And I get a lot of feedback. Bill sees some of that of people that really like it. Um, provides a little leader interaction, um, opportunities for people to weigh in on whatever issue. So this month... It's always the last page of the magazine, just inside the uh, the back cover. Right. And the, this month we asked, um, you know, for people's in, opinions on what the next Ford class carrier that uh, should be named. So people know that the Ford is CVN 78, CVN 79 is John F. Kennedy, CVN 80 is the Enterprise, CVN 81 is the Dory Miller, and 82 has not been named yet. Um, 
so uh, we got a lot of answers. Actually, it broke our record for the number of answers we've gotten. So a lot of uh, uh, really good answers. Um, and in, in with the answers, you get some real flavor for the history of ship naming, um, going back to the founding. Um, carriers generally were uh, for for a long time were named not after people, but after battles, events. Um, yeah. Enterprise, you know, Yorktown, Hornet, yeah. Enterprise, Essex, right? And usually famous ships that preceded them with those names too. Right. That's right. And um, the Nimitz class, there had there were carriers named before the Nimitz class for people, like for instance the the Kennedy, the John F. Kennedy, the first John F. Kennedy, um, CB sixty seven. But the um, Nimitz class really was the first full class of named after. Um, People, presidents, uh, obviously Admiral Nimitz, um, John Stennis, uh, Carl Vinson, uh, etc. So, so far, the Ford class has been back to a little bit of a mix by bringing in Enterprise. We'll see uh, what it is. So, a lot of great answers. And if you are uh, really interested, look at the online version because I could include all 50 or so answers in the online version. Where I could only include, um, I think I got a 10 into the magazine this year. Yeah, one of my favorite answers was uh, Eugene B. Eli, and that came in from uh, Hiller Zobel, who says, the first pilot to fly an airplane off a ship, USS Birmingham, CS2, in 1910, and the first to land on one, USS Pennsylvania, ACR4, in 1911. I thought that was a great pick. Did you have a, a favorite one, Bill? Um, I, I really like that one, and, of, of course, the photo is from our archive um, as well. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I kind of like the, um, uh, Benjamin Franklin, um, the Franklin, uh, you know, to suffer the horrific, uh, the original carrier, uh, Franklin Humphrey's original, uh, damage and death at the, uh, uh, in the, at, toward the end of the uh, war in the Pacific in, in the 19, 1945. Um, so I thought that would be a, a neat one. Pres uh, Franklin wasn't a president, but he was, you know, certainly one of the founding fathers. Yeah, good one. Um, I wanted to talk for a second about the Navy Reserve because we don't often talk about it. And back last fall, so um, the article is titled, Today's Navy Reserve is Focused on High-End Readiness. This was an interview that I did with Vice Admiral John Mustin, who's the Chief of the Navy Reserve uh, last fall. And we just, we, we excerpted the, uh, uh, you know, the transcript of that like 10,000 word conversation I had with him. And it turned out to be a couple thousand words in, in the magazine, but there was some, you know, we don't talk about the reserves a lot, but it's a large force. The Navy reserve, as, as he pointed out to me, uh, end strength in 2022 was 58,600 people, um, two populations, largely the selected reserves and the training and administration of the reserve also called TARS, uh, so the TAR population is about 10,000. So they're on active duty all the time, overseeing the administrative, the you know the training of the reserves and how the reserve force is uh, is utilized. Uh, and then the 48,000 um, uh, active or, or cell res. And then there's another about 30,000 people who have remaining military service obligation, uh, but don't you know they're called the IRR and they don't drill every month, but they're on the Navy's books and subject to recall in, in case of a national, uh, a national emergency. The, the conversation also pointed out, you know, that, that uh, post 
the reserves did a lot of individual augmentation. So you had reserve units out there, but largely they went to war as individual people being called up to go augment Navy, uh, sorry, uh, mainly Marine or Army units, and some, to some extent the Air Force in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they would go and they'd do a year uh, augmentee uh, stint, and then they'd go back to their, their unit. Um, and so he pointed out that uh, after 9-11, they, they uh, mobilized like a, over 120,000 reservists in that capacity as individuals. Um, but what they're doing now, the main fo focus of the Navy Reserve now is to prepare units to stand up and to go forward and to be ready to fight and augment as, as a much larger warfighting force. Uh, so... A, a, a huge retooling of the main purpose uh, and utilization of the reserve force from where we were post 9-11 to where we are now uh, getting ready for, you know, great, great, great power competition, getting ready for, you know, peer level conflict. Um, he doesn't mention fighting China specifically, but it's all obviously geared towards, uh, you know, that kind of uh, situation or geared towards um, you know, what uh, Sixth Fleet and, and uh, Naval Forces Europe are facing now uh, with dealing with the, uh, the Russia uh, threat and the, the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, just one other thing I wanted to point out was uh, a question I asked him because I'd always worked with the reservists. And as they get more senior, they have to go through this thing called the apply board. And so you can be living in the Norfolk area and you can have uh, affiliated with Norfolk area reserve units for you know most of your JO and Lieutenant commander time. And then when you're up for a command billet or up for a, um, a, a paid job at the 04, 05, 06 level, uh, you have to do this thing called the apply board. And so you're applying for jobs that are all over the country and regardless of where you live. And if you get selected for those those jobs, you have to travel on your own dime. So that's been the requirement. So I remember when I was in Hawaii, for example, we had a big reserve unit in Denver that supported the, the Joint Intelligence Operations Center in Hawaii. And all those folks in Denver, I had, I had the CEO of, the first CEO of the unit was a, a cop who lived in LA. And so he'd go to Denver once a month and he'd have to fly himself there and rent a car and stay in a hotel room. All those costs he had to pay for himself. So the interesting thing that Admiral Mustin said is that they had started this new process where they have uh, IDT-R, um, which is reimbursable. So when you do your, your monthly drills, if you're in, they started with the command triad, so COXO and senior enlisted advisor or you know, command master chief, essentially, um, that if you're in one of those paid billets, your travel to get to your unit and to stay at your unit and to, um, you know, to cover your costs would be reimbursed up to a certain amount of money. So that's new for the reservists. And then they've also added that for a lot of the units that, that rely heavily on the reserves. And so some of those are particularly in the um, uh, uh, logistics units, the port security units, the um, uh, what, what's it called? Navy Expeditionary Warfare, Navy Combat, Navy Expeditionary Combat Command units have a lot of reservists that they rely on. And so this reimbursable ability is a very nice thing for reservists who don't, don't have to take, essentially spend their entire monthly paycheck to travel to do their reserve duty. So that that's a very big difference. But good, good interview with Admiral Mustin. 
Uh, he's a Naval Institute member. A lot of people who will recognize the name, particularly older listeners, will recognize the name Mustin. You know, Hammer and Hank Mustin was, I think, the second fleet commander back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, this is his son, who uh, who's now the commander of the Navy Reserve. So um, back to Brian. What, what was the other topic uh, you wanted to talk about today? Well, I just wanted to say about Hammer and Hank, one of these days I'm going to file a FOIA request because I want to see his the classified version of his fighting instructions. The unclassified summary is very well known, and it's basically, uh, it's not unlike the Patton speech at the beginning of the movie Patton. You know, we're <laughs> going to wade into a more. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, it, it, they're worth a read, even in the unclass version, but it's been, well, that was around the time of the maritime strategy. So call it 1985. So 30 yeah. something years ago, I think it's, it's, it's time. We should see I mean, what he was that's, thinking. That's, that's definitely FOIA-able, yes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so the, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit without giving too many spoilers. Um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Kirk, a frequent author for us, and in particular, a frequent short fiction writer for us, wrote a story that is a fictional retrospective. Uh, he, he imagines a war over Taiwan in 2029, and the setting for this is China's equivalent of the Naval War College, where a senior officer who fought in that war is trying to teach lessons about it to the junior officers in attendance, some of whom would have fought in it the way it's presented as well. Uh, it's it's not unlike Dale Relodge, article that won the General Prize Essay Contest a few years ago, How We Lost the Great Pacific War. Uh, it's the same premise of let's look back and see what went wrong. Uh, so it's sort of an intellectual war game or a little a hypothesis for what might have happened during that. Uh, again, I don't want to get into it, too many spoilers, but the title gives away the biggest idea, which is that Chinese knew what they were fighting for, and the U.S. Navy didn't know what it was fighting for, and he attributes it to a variety of causes, including essentially careerism, uh, and talks about, you know, program managers and the idea that, you know, people are protective of their position rather than doing what's right in the grand scheme of things, and that, if, by contrast, the People's Liberation Army and People's Liberation Army Navy were not afraid to take risks. Uh, it's, as you described it in a meeting the other day, Bill, it's a tough read. It's an easy read in the sense of Brian's an outstanding writer and a very good storyteller, but it is it is food for thought and for pause, and uh, it is not something to read when you need cheering up, yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. Right. Um, you know, if you're if you're like me and very ADHD and bouncing around and a little hyper, it's a good thing to calm you down. But uh, it's a, it's an excellent read. Uh, all Brian's stuff is worth reading. Uh, he uh, he's written many many good things for us over the years, including a bunch of short fiction. And I uh, I highly recommend this piece to anybody who wants to think about what's coming. It is good to imagine how you might lose, I think, so that you can think about how you might win in contrast to that. But it is no easy thing to project it and to project it plausibly. And I think Brian does a really nice job with that this time. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Bill, you had another article you wanted to chat about. Yeah, another interview, actually. Uh, 
Chris Nelson, uh, Commander Chris Nelson, who is an active duty uh, Naval Intelligence Officer and a longtime member and has written for the Institute. In fact, he's in uh, the February issue twice, once uh, conducting this interview with, uh, and the other one uh, is, is he's a co-author on a professional note. But this interview is with retired Captain Jim Fitzsimons, who is also, a, it was also an intelligence officer, a surface warfare officer first, and then he was an intelligence officer, and he served 27 years on active duty, retired in 2001, and he's been at the Naval War College ever since. He runs the Halsey Alpha Advanced Research Group, uh, for those who you know haven't gone to the War College or don't know, so th this is a, a program that runs in parallel with a student's time at the War College, and they would fill, fit it in with their elective schedules. And it it takes um, a small number of students from different backgrounds, um, and uh, puts them through kind of a series of ten week war games and then paper writing. Um, uh, Jim's been running that. So it's a it's a great interview. He gives his perspective. The most important thing apart it though is Jim's giving his perspective on the um, the I guess the intellectual readiness of the officers that are turning up at the at the war college uh, at kind of the um, you know mid oh four grade for the uh, the the junior course. Um, there are he does have people in the Halsey group in the senior course. And you would think, I would think, um, certainly that he that they would say, or Jim would say that they are technically um, smart, technically astute on the on the, the equipment that uh, that we need in the, the to, for the high end fight, but they're not as uh, um, steeped in the kind of the operational art of warfare. But he actually says the opposite. He says that the the war colleges are teaching the operational art but the students don't understand the technology outside of their narrow communities. Um, and they don't really know how to use the other stuff um, in the operational art of, of war fighting. And if you don't understand the technology, you can't apply it operationally. He says it's a real shortfall. He thinks that, and he says in the interview, less than 25% of the students he thinks are ready to uh, you know, kind of operate at the operational level of warfare um, for the big fight. So it's a little concerning. Um, he, you know, he, he, he says they're motivated, they're great patriots and all that and, and everything. Now, I took away also, last thing I'll say on this from the article is, and some of the work I did years ago on the SSG is, the military is very high tech. It, it's hard to be smart on just the stuff in your area. <laughs> you know, there's only so many hours in a day, weeks in a year, you know, and we have these gates that officers have to hit to get, you know, promoted and through things. And by the time they turn up at the war college at, you know, well, let's say 12 years or so, I, there just isn't enough time to know all, you know, no more than they do. Um, it really makes you wonder whether the, um, there needs to be a grand relook of the um, statutory limits on officer service, that, so they have more time uh, to spend in the in the service. Um, stretches out would stretch out promotions, but still, um, j just to become smarter on things, this 30-year statutory limit did not exist before World War II, and uh, so uh, and there were a lot of things different. But I, it just is. It's when you cram all these requirements in. By the time they hit in their 05 command, it's 16 to 18 years. They don't have a ton of experience, really don't.
Yeah, it, that one reminded me of two, two thoughts on that. One is um, it reminded me of the article by Graham Scarborough a few years ago talking about professional military education. And Graham's article, I think, was titled Put the N Back in PME. And, and he was saying that, you know, because of JPME, uh, a lot of 04s and 05s and 06s, you know, knew, know a lot about the other services. You know, Navy folks know a lot about the Air Force and the Army and in the Marine Corps and, and uh, sort of the joint force, but perhaps don't know enough about their own service. So Navy guys not understanding, Navy pilots, I think was one of his examples because uh, Graham's a, a super Hornet guy, but he was saying that he didn't know enough about Harpoon or about Tomahawk. Um, and, and, you know, SWO is not knowing enough about, you know, uh, the, the ability of the Super Hornet or the Growler to do their missions and, and that there needed to be more understanding at the tactical level of war of all the different capabilities that our own service brings to bear. And so this one, this interview with Jim Fitzsimons reminded me of that. I also just wanted to say that, you know, there are, and, and Jim isn't as prolific a writer because of much of his work is done in the classified realm, but, you know, in the, in the pantheon of people who, uh, who write and influence the service after they're, you know, after they're retired. You know, you've got Wayne Hughes and he's quoted, gosh, in probably 30, 40% of proceedings articles. And Wayne Hughes is, you know, rightly so. Um, fire effectively first. Fire effectively first. <laughs> but I would say that, that uh, Jim Fitzsimons, I've met him and talked to him a few times. Intellectually, he is the peer of Wayne Hughes or Jim Holmes or Sam Tangretti, uh, there are there are some giants, and you know he, he has a, a lower profile, but Jim Fitzsimons is right up there, and he is an incredibly smart guy with incredible insights. And if I could, you know, whisper anything in the CNO's ear, it would be to spend a day or two a year talking to Jim Fitzsimons because I think, you know, what he knows and the insights he has from the uh, the wargaming that that he and his teams do up there every year are are it's incredibly powerful stuff. Yeah. Bill Bray, one of the things you said there about the statutory limit is kind of interesting. Before, before World War II, a naval career, an officer's career was built not on a limit of 30 years, but with an intention that you'd get to 30 years, mm -hmm. that your, your path expected 30 years if you were going to get to any kind of uh, significant senior command, significant command. So everything took a little longer. There was time to get fully qualified in one, more than one warfare specialty. Now the path is defined really by a 20-year goal. And if you get to flag rank, then you get beyond it. But okay. basically, up, upper out says once you're at 20, you're pretty much gone unless. Um, you know, everybody's trying to – I mean, that's why there's the safe zone, right? At 18 years, unless there's wrongdoing, you know, they'll – They'll retain you for a couple more years to get to that 20-year retirement. But that was not, not only was there not a cap on it, that was not at all the norm for most of the people in senior roles who fought World War II. I mean, you think about Nimitz, he was qualified, he command he, he was qualified in submarines, he commanded an oiler uh, at some point, um, and you know, or King, who was a what now we call a surface warfare guy, who then went and became qualified as an aviator. Um, well past the age at which we'd train a pilot today. But, and then there were particularities about that. It was a new specialty and people yeah. in charge needed to understand it and everything. But it was a completely different way of thinking about it, not just let's put a limit on it, but we want people who 
can be masters of several trades, not just jacks of all trades. Yeah, that's right. And uh, 20 years is the, is the retirement cliff. That's probably going to change a little bit under the new BRS, but the blender retirement system. But it was, and of course, if you stayed in past 20 and you made 06, you had to stay in uh, service for three more years to be able to retire at that pay grade. So that pushed you out closer to 24, 25. But, um, you know, there's a lot of good reasons why the statutory limit was put in place back in the, you know, 70s under the Dotmer reforms. Um, I don't really, it was a bad decision. I just think that like anything over time, uh, maybe it needs to be relooked now because of the complexity, uh, the technical complexity of war fighting. Um, the fact that people just live longer and, you know, um, in, in the 50s, officers retire with, with 28, 30 years and they just retire. You know, they, they weren't doing a second career, you know, right. um, but that's uh, that's not the way of the world anymore. Yeah. Another, you know, we had our editorial board meeting uh, two days ago, Wednesday, and one of the conversations that, that, that we talked about, things we talked about was uh, some changes that are being made to uh, officer career progression in, in all the services. And when I interviewed Admiral Poulin, the Coast Guard vice commander last week on the show, he brought this up. Uh, and it talk, talking about retention, particularly, you know, officer retention, but the, the uh, flexibility now, uh, and it's not, it's not being used widely, but, but this is a new flexibility where an officer can say, I don't want to be considered for promotion this year. And you can put in a paper, ask for a waiver, and sort of take yourself off that up or out um, escalator for a, a year, two years, you know, possibly because, you you um, you know you wanted to do something that sort of went sideways in your career, or possibly because you arrived late uh, to uh, you know Devere Crooks, uh, the, the senior SWO on our board. He mentioned this that if you get to your 05 command tour and you've just gotten to that tour when you're up for 06, it's not gonna it's probably not gonna go well for you for the 06 board. So you put in this letter, you you take yourself out of the promotion zone until you get another fit rep at sea, until you get another, or, or perhaps you complete that time at sea. And so I think some of those things, they won't be used by most people, probably a small percentage, but, but that may portend changes to DAPMA where, you know, at, you don't have to retire as an 06 until you get to 32 or 35 years, right? Just extend that career path out to provide more time to get better at all levels of what, you know, of your, your professional requirements and your, your, you know, understanding your job at tactical level, operational level, maybe even strategic level. You both have heard this from me before, and I know, Bill Bray, you disagree with me vigorously on this. Um, but, you know, I, I look it up or out, you know, the, the civilian equivalent for me would be, I go to my doctor's office and find out my doctor is gone. And I say, what happened? He's a fantastic doctor. And they say, that's right. He was a fantastic doctor, but we don't ever think he's going to be hospital administrator. So we had to fire him. And, you know, I mean, the problem is that you're forcing people along a path that maybe they don't want it. Maybe some doctors maybe just want to be doctors. They want to do patient care for their whole career. And I know there's, uh, I can see Bill Bray just itching to smack this idea down <laughs> as he does every time I bring it up in the office. It's an analogy so flawed it, it doesn't dignify a response to me. <laughs> because wait for the next podcast. There's no limit on the number of doctors in America, right? There's no 
Congress funds a certain amount of officer billets a year, and that's all the services can have. So when an 04 decides to sit on 04 for 15 years, there's an 03 somewhere who can be a make 04 because there's no opening for him or her to get to. It's a very, it's a more uh, closed system uh, from that perspective. And I agree with you that, you know, some people want to, I just want to fly on F-18 Hornet for, you know, 30 years as a lieutenant. I'm good with that. I don't think, I, by the way, I don't think a lot of people really would do that. But secondly, um, there's, you know, that the Naval Aviation needs department heads, it needs XOs, it needs COs. And you, 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 you start taking people off that track, you could do it in small numbers, but if you do it in large numbers, you, you run into a huge problem of making the, uh, you know, quality cut for the leadership you need to run the service. I'm just going to say the words industrial age and then hand it to Bill Hamlet to wrap it up without giving you a chance to rebut that. Well, I'm not going to rebut that. I'll just say that, I, you know, from what I gather from, you know, everything from the, the, the comments of Admiral Poulin on the show last week to General Berger's article in the November issue about recruiting and retention, um, changes are going to come or must come to military manpower and how we manage uh, you know, not just officer manning, but but all uh, personnel, because we, we need to, re, you know, re recruiting is a it's a difficult thing. There's 11 million jobs in, in America outside the military that are unfilled these days. Uh, so hiring people is a challenge. Uh, getting people to stay, uh, you know, and do department head tours. There's a lot of things that the services probably have to do differently. And so changes are coming and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of those changes are being debated in our pages and being mentioned in, uh, you know, in the conversations. And in fact, uh, Admiral Kitchener on the podcast last week, he talked about, you know, getting people to stay for department head tours and making sure that they're, you know, getting them off of ships while they still have some commitment left in their time in the Navy. Because if your commitment ends and you're still in your JO tour on a ship and you haven't, you know, all you've known is haze gray and underway, you're less likely to stay in than if you're on shore, shore duty and you're like, okay, yep, I, I did my sea duty. Now I'm on the shore tour. I'm at NPS per, per, perhaps. I'm doing something that I'm enjoying. I, I get to see my wife or my spouse, my girlfriend, my husband. Um, and so maybe I will stay a little bit longer, but that, that was out of the you know, words from, from Admiral Kitchener. Uh, before we go, I, there's, I did want to make mention one other article. Um, this is the um, second prize in the CNO Naval History Essay Contest last year. Uh, the article is called Make It a Home Game, Lessons for Littoral Campaigns, Major Dustin Nicholson. Uh, I don't want to give away the whole thing, but this is a, a very insightful article. As I read it when we were uh, evaluating it. And then as we were editing it, uh, it, it just, I, I took insights away from it that I hadn't before in my you know entire career from the Solomon's Island campaign and the Falklands Island campaign. And it just made me think about things a little differently, which I think is why it was a, a prize winner. Uh, but he looks at, you know, the current challenge of China, great power competition, Western, you know, Pacific first Island chain, and you, you would think, and, and everybody, a lot of people do frame it up as, well, that's a home game for China, and it's an extreme away game for the United States. And yet, the two examples that he cites, the Solomon's Island campaign uh, in World War II, which was certainly a, a farther away game for the United States than it was for Japan, or the Falklands campaign in the 1980s uh, was, a, was a home game for 
Argentina and a much farther away game for, uh, for the United Kingdom. But in both cases, the victor turned that, you know, island chain, turned that far away game into a home game. And I won't, I won't give away, you know, how Major Nicholson gets to that logic. But when you read it, you go, huh, that's, that's an interesting way to look at this problem set. And, it's, and, he, and he, he takes away some very cogent lessons uh, for how we think about, you know, the first island chain and defending Taiwan and the, the problems that we face in the Western Pacific today. So uh, if, if any of you had uh, any thoughts on that one, but I just I really appreciated the article and it was it, it solidified some thinking for me that you know, perhaps I hadn't uh, or ways I hadn't thought of it in the past. Well, Dustin, actually, this isn't the first time he's touched on the uh, Falkland Islands. He uh, had an article in Naval History in August 2019 that I think was a CNO history uh, placer. I, I don't remember for sure, but he basically sort of goes through the history of the Falklands. And it was one of the first times in the last uh, last five, six, seven years where we really got into the Falkland Islands as something that pointed toward what might be happening in the Western Pacific for us. Um, so he's paid a lot of attention to this over the years, and he's thought a lot about it. I, we know from our authors who are reading Chinese sources that China has paid a lot of attention to the Falkland Island War. Um, he's a he's a very good writer. I mean, yeah. he, whether you agree with his thesis or not, his, his language, his explanation, his way of phrasing things is worth a read, even if you come away and say he's wrong. You'll, yep. have, enjo you'll have enjoyed the process of disagreeing with him. Concur. Okay, well, we are uh, probably about out of time. Uh, any parting shots from either of you? Um, one comeback on the reserve article. I, you know, as you know, Bill worked with reserves. I worked with reserves my, my career. I had 10 units supporting me when I was in command. And uh, it always reminded me of the George Bernard Shaw quote that England and the United States are two countries separated by a common language because the reserves and the active duty, I still don't understand the reserves. And it's, it's a totally different thing that I never really got and they, how they do things and, and yet we work side by side and somehow make it work. <laughs> That's a great line. You know, Bill, Bill, as you talked about that article, you said, you know, we don't talk a lot about the reserves. I think part of the problem is nobody talks a lot about the reserves. And that, that maybe plays into what Bill Bray was just saying about not understanding it is it's just this thing that exists. And at some point, maybe we'll need those bodies. And so keep them familiar. You hear stories about reserve drill weekends being, you know, sitting around playing cards and things like that. Um, I don't think that's really the case anymore from what I hear. I think people are pretty busy when they do it. But this whole idea that I have a chief petty officer friend who used to live in San Diego and drilled in Norfolk. Um, he's, now, he's now a tar uh, in, in an office at the Pentagon, so he lives out here now. But it, it's just crazy how we do that. And maybe we, should, maybe we should talk more about it, which means maybe those of you listening who are inclined to write about this and are knowledgeable enough about this to write about it should help everybody understand by writing about it. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and I, I would, uh, I'll point out that um, uh, my attitude towards the reserves in my career, and, and there's a lot of reserve, the, the, the Naval Intelligence Reserve is large and, and punches above its weight, I think, compared to 
you know, perhaps the, the submarine reserves or the surface warfare reserves. Um, it, you know, it's hard to be, stay qualified to run a nuclear reactor when you're, a, you know, um, when you've got about 28 days a year to do so. Uh, it's easier to contribute to intelligence functions uh, as a reservist. But one of the things that, you know, when, when reserves did well and were meaningfully employed and, were, and had high levels of morale, it was always because the gaining command found things, found tasks, meaningful tasks that they could do on their weekends. And so you didn't give them massive things that were going to take years to accomplish. You gave them specific discrete tasks that they could accomplish. And one of the things I mentioned, the, the Denver Reserve Unit, they were incredibly um, powerful and, and productive when we made their reserve um, facility a skiff. So top secret SCI level facility with high bandwidth communications with the same imagery interpretation tools and computer systems and databases that we had out in Hawaii. And so reservists could come in on the weekends or they could come in where they could reschedule their drills to work days. Uh, and they, we could give them targets to analyze. We could give them um, you know, imagery studies to do. They could knock it out and they could send us finished products just as if they were a, an active duty uh, imagery analyst, imagery interpreter or targeteer working for us in Hawaii. And so when you, when you allow the reserves, you know, give them the right tools and give them discrete, discrete tasks, they're in, an incredibly uh, powerful force multiplier. So I'll, I'll, I'll end my sermon there, but I, you know, to your point, anyone who's listening who's a reservist or knows a reservist, we would love to hear more from the reserve force, right? Right for proceedings, tell us your ideas on how to be, be a more effective or more uh, or a better employed force by the active duty component because it's, I think it's incredibly important. Okay, well that wraps up another episode of the show. Uh, if you like us, ring the bell, become a member, um, share us with your friends, subscribe, become a member of the Naval Institute at usni.org forward slash join. And until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.